Around the world, populations are ageing rapidly. There is currently more than 1 billion people over the age of 60 years, representing 14% of the global population. By 2050, this population will have more than doubled to 2.1 billion. With population ageing as the backdrop, a number of global challenges take centre stage, including rising rates of non-communicable diseases, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the threat of future global pandemics, climate change, mobilisation of civil society and economic uncertainty. The United Nations Decade of Healthy Ageing, launched in 2021, represents a concerted action to prioritise healthy ageing and improve the lives of older people. Amidst the backdrop of the decade, now is the time to explore challenges and strategies to improve health and social systems that ultimately impact the function and quality of life of current and future generations of older people. My name is Jane Barrett, Secretary General of the International Federation on Ageing. Join me, along with esteemed experts and colleagues, in a series of dialogues which aim to help reframe the intersecting challenges that impact not only the health and well-being of older people, but the way we all live and age. This is the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast. Welcome to the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we're looking at the coordination of care globally and prioritising access to care for all. In the UN Decade of Healthy Aging, integrated care is a key action area. But what makes systems integrated? And how do we break down silos that exist across our health systems and levels and disciplines of care? My guests offer expert perspectives on the case for coordination of care for patients and their families and governments alike. Joining me today is Dr. Neve Lennox-Chugani and Dr. John Muscadieri. Dr. Neve Lennox-Chugani is the Chief Executive and Director of Research at the International Foundation for Integrated Care. With 30 years of experience in evidence-based transformation in healthcare internationally as a clinician, an academic and a consultant. The International Foundation for Integrated Care acts as the leading voice and advocate for integrated care, providing a unique forum for knowledge exchange to maximise the health and well-being of people and communities while improving the overall effectiveness and sustainability of health and care systems. Dr John Muscadieri is an intensivist at Kingston General Hospital and Professor of Critical Care Medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's University in Canada. Additionally, Dr Muscadieri is the Scientific Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Frailty Network that aims to improve care for older adults living with frailty and support their families and caregivers. Today we discuss the components needed to achieve integrated care, the importance of patient-centeredness in health systems, bringing specific attention 
to the prevention, management and care for frailty and bone health. Welcome to Dr. Neve Lennox-Chugani and also to Dr. John Muscadiri. I'll start with you, Neve, and it would be helpful from your perspective as the CEO of the International Foundation of Integrated Care to get your perspectives about what the definition of integrated care is. So defining integrated care has been a project for numerous researchers for about 20 years now. Uh, We started off with uh, Codner back in 2000 who defined integrated care and we've probably had in excess of 200 different definitions of integrated care since then. So at the foundation, we've, we've kind of decided that just defining integrated care in a single all-encompassing definition is probably not really helpful at this stage. What we talk about are four defining features of care that make it integrated. One is coordination, which we're, we're going to talk about today. The other is continuity. Um, and both of those as experienced by the person at the centre. So quite often when we look at systems that are trying to integrate, move towards greater integration, that integration is not necessarily from the perspective of the person at the centre of care, but it's sometimes integration from the point of view of the services that are redefining themselves. So if you really are talking about integrated care, you're doing it from the point of view of the person at the centre of care. But there's another dimension as well that we've drawn on some of the work that's being done around population health, which is being community centred as well. So it's acknowledging that people live in communities. What matters to them is being engaged in and contributing to the communities that they live in. So those are the four core elements that we see to integration, coordination, continuity, person-centeredness and community-centeredness. And that can be very contextual, so it can be confined to the health system or it can be much broader. And again, population health approaches take a much broader, multi-sectoral approach to integration. But where you are will depend on your health system context, your social context, political, technological context. Um, But if you've got those four things, you're working towards integration. Thank you very much for that, Neve. And I'm going to go directly to John, your scientific director and CEO of the Canadian Frailty Network and Professor of Critical Care Medicine. I'm particularly interested in pulling through that definition that Neve just helped us understand into the patient journey. You know, the patient journey is you receive an assessment, your diagnosis, and the treatment of frailty and bone health. How does integrated care as a concept, you know, how is it operationalized in reality for some of the most vulnerable populations that we have in our society? So uh, thank you for the question. Um, so when we look at people living with, with frailty in our communities, which are about a quarter of all the people living over the age of 65, they are the most vulnerable older individuals in society who tend to have multiple 
needs or to enable their function, to enable their integration in society. They may have medical needs, they may have social needs, they may have psychological uh, needs. And the concept of integrated care with the four elements that Neve has outlined are probably the most applicable to people living with frailty, that in order to improve their outcomes as we go forward, we need to address all those things to improve aging as a society. So the other aspect of this is that not everybody that ages is as vulnerable or as frail. There's a certain portion that become frail and their assessment may allow further evaluation that can address all those multidimensional needs that may be present to improve their long-term outcomes. We've really gone to the extreme, haven't we, in talking about some of the most complex cases of human frailty in our society. I was shocked to hear you say one in four. That really is 25% of our population. I want to now try and understand how do we operationalise integrated care within healthy ageing and the reorientation of health systems. Neve, what's your perspective on this? So I would say that that is very, again, context-bound. So a lot of high-income countries are moving in very similar ways. I think we need to separate out the goals that probably those of us involved in the evidence, creating the evidence around integrated care and why it is the right solution to high-quality, high-value health and care, might be slightly different from some of the reasons why politicians and policymakers are choosing it as a a new model of care. And I think that's one of the things that we have observed in our knowledge generation and curation of the evidence around integrated care, is that sometimes there is a, a bit of a disconnect between why policymakers think integrated care is the answer to healthcare systems that are hugely challenged in terms of their capacity um, and the cost, the escalating cost of those systems versus the motivations perhaps of those of us who have been promoting integrated care as a model of care from a clinical um, and organisational perspective for some years where we view it actually as offering better value. We know it gives better patient outcomes We know patients have a better experience of care if it's coordinated and continuous. We also know that particularly physicians and other health and care professionals working in primary and community services particularly have much greater satisfaction in the work that they do and connecting with the people um, that they work with, their families and their communities, if they are offering integrated models of care. So, Neve, we're really talking about integrated care in an environment where frontline workers are really up against the wall. We're seeing that there isn't the uptake rate of these, you know, nurse position and physician positions, etc. So, John, if we're thinking about this tension between healthy ageing populations and the importance and the evidence of integrated care, but right at the other end, increasingly populations with very complex care needs, what are some of the barriers that impede access for those who most need this complex care coordination? 
Well, those barriers have become very apparent after the uh, the pandemic. And so the first thing is access to primary care. Uh, we know in Canada that there's uh, large numbers of people who do not have access to primary care, which is probably the most important thing as the gatekeepers to the system. Um, the other aspect of this is not just primary care, it's multidisciplinary teams that are can be embedded in primary care. So these are teams, these are family health teams that include all the aspects that people as they grow older may need. So for example, a physiotherapist, a nutritionist, pharmacist, all those things that address some of the uh, problems that frail people may need or may need addressed. The other aspect of it too is that we don't necessarily screen people in in a systematic way for pre-frailty or people that are starting to decline when we may be able to intervene earlier. And we normally wait till people are in crisis to either try to access to their family doctor or present to emergency departments which have been overwhelmed or present to the acute care system where it's just not optimized to actually take care of people living with frailty and especially that may have combined social and health needs at the same time. So going forward, I think if we're going to address those, we need to have a holistic uh, approach to this. And it's not something that we can do short term, but it's a long term vision of what we would want as we grow older and as we uh, become more vulnerable if we do get to that point. Well, we have to get to that point, don't we? But I want to put a question to both of you. You've both got a lot of experience in working with government and building business cases. So, Neve, starting with you, what's the business case for greater investment in health promotion and prevention within an integrative care framework? John, I'll talk to you in the context of bone health. So, Neve, what are your thoughts about the business case? So I always prefer to talk about the value case rather than the business case, because I think that speaks to those of us who are health professionals, but also speaks to communities. And I think the value case, if we look at the evidence, is, as I said earlier, it is a better experience for people and the communities they live in. It's a better experience for staff. And we know, to John's point, the workforce crisis is global in health and care. We know that we need to be attracting a new generation of health and care professionals. Now, to do that, the job they do has to be attractive and has to be satisfying. And we know that models of integrated care offer much greater satisfaction through interdisciplinary working for health and care professionals. But also, we're starting to see the evidence through systematic reviews that actually having really robust integrated models of care that are built on strong primary and community care and integration with social care and long-term care do reduce the burden on acute services. And that really is what we're trying to do today in most high-income countries. We've seen the bed base in many secondary care sectors been reduced significantly over the last two decades. And in a way, they were anticipating this shift to care closer to home, but without investing in the care closer to home. So really, for me, the value case is 
actually you should have been doing this two decades ago. Now you're having to pay catch up. So start catching up, please. And I would certainly applaud any government who is investing in even catch up. John, I have this vision of sometime in the future, you know, governments will say it's very important to have a life course approach to bone health. So what are your perspectives about that? And what is the case for greater investment in bone health? So there is a big case. And I think the problem from a government perspective is the short-term aspects of it. It's what can we accomplish within our current mandate? And that's when we've advocated for a public health approach, which looks at prevention, things like nutrition, like exercise, like all those things which increase function and also improve quality of life. But those are not short-term investments. Those are long-term investments that you need to make and you need to have a visionary approach to going forward. So it's not something that if we adopted a public health approach to prevention of frailty, to bone health, to all those things that we would see, we could see some short-term benefits, but the, the benefits would probably be much longer, much more longer than a lot of governments, uh, than the time horizon of a lot of governments. So systematic approaches, I think, are sorely needed. We need to advocate as an aging population that that's what's going to improve healthy aging in Canada. And there has to be a holistic approach that focuses on all those aspects that can impact uh, bone health, that can reduce frailty, all those uh, things going forward. It's certainly a big job and also we're caught up in the political cycle all the time, aren't we? You know, as soon as you've actually explained and convinced the value of, then we have a new um, set of politicians and government. I just want to come to both of you now and if you could briefly just explain at a high level, you know, what your organisations do. So, Neve, you're the CEO of the International Foundation for Integrated Care. So, what do we need to know about the programs and achievements of this important organisation? So really our goal is to, um, to generate, curate and share knowledge and evidence around integrated care. And we do that. We host the International Journal on Integrated Care. We run international conferences every year. Our annual conference is Europe-based but we also run uh, world congresses. So we had our North American, our first North American conference on integrated care a couple of years ago. Um, and we'll be hosting our third Asia Pacific conference in Sydney later this year. But we also do, we have quite an extensive research program, which is funded by the European Union because it has a huge focus on promoting integrated care across health and care systems. Um, and then we have an academy. So we run an academy where we offer training for health and care professionals, but also informal carers and people with lived experience who want to get more involved in their communities and promoting integrated care. So that gives you a sense of the, the range of things that we do at the foundation. You know, the importance of creating, curating and disseminating knowledge across sectors and disciplines is fundamental to informing policy. So thank you. John, I've known about the Canadian Frailty Network for some time. It's one of those national centres of excellence that has led the way, not only nationally, but around the world. So what is the network up to these days and what's the future look like? 
So the network, um, we've been in operation now for about uh, 10 years, and our focus has always been on improving care for people living with frailty, but we've pivoted a bit in the past while to also emphasizing prevention recognizing that frailty is not an inevitable part of aging. And the prevention aspect is promoting a public health approach uh, through the AVOID framework. AVOID is an acronym which stands for Promotion of Activity, Vaccination, Optimization of Medication, Reduction of Social Isolation, and diet and nutrition plus falls and sleep, which are all things which have evidence behind them that they can actually either prevent um, a frailty or reduce or delay its occurrence, or if frailty is present, mitigating that. And we're implementing that in uh, in four uh, four centers across uh, four regional healthy aging centers across Canada. And going forward, uh, we're going to be increasingly advocate that to address healthy aging in Canada, we need both health, social, and technological innovation all in concert uh, to address healthy aging for a holistic, long-term approach to improve outcomes from aging as we go forward. So it's really, I guess, you're partnering with and collaborating with similar-like organizations to actually really drive an agenda around healthy ageing, which will impact people of all levels of function. Would that be correct? That is absolutely correct. Um, Ageing is uh, is one of those things which is not addressable by any single government, by any single organisation. It requires a coordinated approach, all pulling in the same uh, direction. So, to do all the things that I address, so technological, we're partnering with AgeWell, we're partnering with a lot of other organizations. Uh, partnership is one of the key things that we do, and uh, we're happy to, to speak with everybody to try to arrive at a shared vision of what a, uh, a super-aged country, which will, Canada will become in the next few years, will look like in the future. And, of course, there's a strong relationship, partnership with the World Health Organization as well. That's where we meet on occasions. Um, And I think that it's important to, to make those connections vertically and horizontally so that we can, you know, work towards a common agenda, coming at the agenda and the outcomes from different perspectives. Just a couple of more questions before we close off. We live in times of austerity. Our health systems were challenged before the COVID-19 pandemic. That hasn't changed. Neve, you've really talked about integrated care as almost a a way to incentivise, you know, healthcare workers, frontline workers to be part of the system. But I do want to just touch on In your role as CEO, what policy and practice changes are needed to prioritise integrated care where we are right at the moment? So I think just to extend on the point you made about us being in austerity, I think we already have a case for why austerity and contracting and not investing in integrated care is not the answer because our health and care systems were in a really fragile state when the pandemic hit. And I would argue that if there's ever a good case for investing in primary and community services particularly, but coordinated 
with hospital services that we start to see systems as genuine systems, that argument has been made for us by the pandemic. So I would put the austerity argument completely to one side and say, actually, politicians and policymakers do not have an option right now unless they want us to go through the same cycle again. And one of the things that I will usually do when involved in advising at national and, and pan-national level is first of all, do some housekeeping. So look at what in your system of your policy levers is incentivizing fragmentation. So what's getting in the way of coordination and continuity for patients and for their families and remove those barriers first rather than layering in new coordination systems, new case management models, et cetera, et cetera. Find out what's getting in the way, first of all. And frontline health and care staff and patients and informal carers will tell you that. They're your first source of information because they'll tell you what's getting in the way of that. So I think that would be my plea to policymakers today is just understand what's stopping it from happening and remove those barriers. I think that you've just taught me a new concept, which is incentivizing fragmentation. And so I'm going to flip the next question to you, John. You know, what is going to happen if we do not have a person-centeredness across the health and social care system? So I think we're going to have a continuation of what we currently see. And this is only going to get worse because what happens is if you're in primary care or you're in the community and you deal with overwhelming demands that you aren't able to address outside of a coordinated system, that's going to increase the dissatisfaction that we see. And it's going to make us more vulnerable to other stressors in the system. So either future pandemics or climate change or, or natural or natural disasters. So we've underfunded different aspects of the healthcare system, not funded areas that we should have, and things grumbled along until the stressor of the pandemic came along. And if we don't address this um, with an aging population who are going to have more health needs, um, it's going to be a disaster, which is going to wind the inequity that is seen in societies uh, all along. The people who are really well off are probably going to do okay. It's the people that are the most vulnerable that are going to be the most disserved and the most impacted. And so if we want to have an equitable society where everybody can age well uh, going forward, we need to address all the things that Neve has talked about and truly have an integrated system which integrates acute care, primary care, community services into one system uh, going forward. And most of us would agree that that makes sense. So we just need to push our decision makers to actually get there. Both of you across this podcast have alluded to the importance of collaboration and partnership in your work. So could both of you just share your tips and tricks for ensuring sustained collaboration across sectors and disciplines? Because that's part of the solution to driving our agenda forward. So I'll start with Neve. Any tips and tricks around collaboration? I think collaboration is one of those words that's used very loosely in health and care integration, particularly. 
it's talked about as if you just say it, it will happen. Actually, collaboration takes a huge amount of time and effort to engage in. It requires relationships of trust. That means building that trust over time. You need a shared purpose. Actually, I think quite often these days we have a shared purpose. So that's not always hard to get to. But it's then ensuring that you keep that collaboration and those, that relationship of trust going through difficult times and making difficult decisions together. Um, and I think that is the one thing that we saw in the pandemic is that when people had a single purpose and a single foe, if you like, in focus, they were able to collaborate across sectors very quickly, but they were also probably given permission and given unlimited resources to just get on with it and deliver. But also they, they were able to put aside a lot of the other work that they have to do day to day. So there are lessons we can learn from collaboration in, in the pandemic, but we need to be cognizant of the fact that in many ways, as challenging as it was, it was fairly single focused. And we, we all work in complex systems that are not single focused, particularly when you're talking about frail older population. It is incredibly complex. And you really played out, you know, the notion of complexity and sustainability. Um, this isn't something that happens very quickly. I think the one phrase that caught my attention was, you know, this is about making difficult decisions together. The easy ones we can do by ourselves, but it's the difficult ones. So, John, your thoughts about how do we sort of build this collaboration that's sustainable? So the major issue is building a shared vision to start. And then shared visions, a lot of times on the surface look easy, but if you actually start to dig deeper, um, they take a lot of work to arrive at. And, and also, it's, sometimes it's terminology and what we, what we think. So we may all be thinking that we're talking the same language. A lot of times we're not. So it's taking all that time to actually talk through the problem, to evaluate the problem, and then go forward in incremental steps with, with your partners, whoever uh, they may be. And also the other thing too is not to look for partnerships in people who are easy to discern, but sometimes there's very valuable partnerships in, in sectors that you may not even have thought of initially that may be important to you. So having that broad mind is really important. And at the end of the day, um, it's got to be the public that really drives this and makes us go, go towards a shared vision. And we haven't uh, had this much. And in Canada, the discourse for, for healthcare has been really one-sided, that it's short-term thinking. We were very reactionary to being proactive, and that's what we need to increasingly emphasize going forward. Thank you very much to both of you. As we come to our final moments of this important podcast, I want to turn to both of you and ask you to share your key takeaway message today for the audience. Neve, I started with you, so off you go, and then I'll go to John. So I think key for me is for us, first of all, to be clear as societies that we value older people. And we need to stop using some of the language that we've seen for the last couple of decades around 
our aging populations, stop seeing it as a problem. And in fact, it is, it's a sign of success and it's a huge asset to our communities. Um, and in doing that, I would say that we also need to focus our evaluation approach. So as we generate the evidence around healthy aging and what contributes to healthy aging, we're communicating back that evidence to our wider communities, to our societies, so we can start having a really positive conversation about the contribution that our aging populations bring to all of us. Thank you, Neve, for sort of pulling through this whole area of ageism as well. So, John, your final thoughts? I think it all starts with uh, recognizing the value of older individuals in our society, as Neve has said. Older individuals do contribute greatly to our society. They're not just burdens on the society. And I think if we address it right, the increasing number of older individuals will greatly contribute to society as we go forward. The key message, though, is that if we're to enable healthy aging or aging well as we go forward, we will need social health and technological innovation all in concert to actually be able to accomplish that. It's not just a health problem. It's not just a social problem. And technology needs to be harnessed to enable innovations in both of those, uh, those other two areas. But that requires a coordinated visionary approach. And that's the only way that we're actually going to really make an older society of benefit to everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Neve Lennox-Chigani and Dr. John Muscadieri. It's clear from today's conversation that older people, patients, their families and frontline healthcare professionals provide valued perspectives required to bridge gaps in health systems. We must closely examine how systems incentivize the fragmentation of care and what stops integration that enables preventative and continuous care that preserves function and supports a life course approach to healthy ageing. The International Federation on Ageing wishes to thank Amgen for their support in the creation, design and production of the podcast series, Reframing Healthy Ageing. To find more information on this episode and read the associated blog, please visit ifa.ngo. Let's continue the dialogue on healthy ageing. Follow, like and engage with us on social media at IFAging. See you next time.